You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Now, uh, before I get started, though, guys, I just wanted to celebrate with you guys just one more announcement. Um, you know, last week was our inaugural uh, Compassion Sunday at Mercy's Door. If you were here, we, uh, we brought in um, uh, Benton and Kristen, who are both sick with COVID this morning. You guys will be praying for them. Uh, but they came and they gave testimony before the church to talk about their relationship with Compassion International and these kids that they've been sponsoring for several years. And we reached out to you guys and we said, you know, we'd really love to see Mercy's Door respond and, and initiate a partnership with Compassion International. And I was kind of stressed about it. I was praying about it a ton because, I mean, if you look around in the summer's uh, every summer, really, t- attendance on a Sunday morning fluctuates a ton as people travel and visit their families and celebrate their vacations and all that. And so we don't really know what to expect on a given Sunday morning, uh, what we're going to see. And so it was a labor to kind of determine, like, Lord, how many children would you have us put on this table? It's really what it comes down to. The numbers don't matter in here, but I, I don't want to grab any kids and put them on that table if they're not going to be sponsored because uh, for three weeks they'll be out of the registry as we hold them out to our church. And so we brought 15 children before you guys, and by the end of service, 14 of them had been sponsored. Thank you so much. You guys can clap. Just really wonderful, really wonderful. And then there was this one little girl left, little Arlet, four years old from Bolivia, who had not been sponsored, and by midweek, somebody in the church picked her up. And so all 15 children have been accounted for. Just wanted to celebrate that with you guys. Thank you for that. And then give you next steps, okay? So what it means for you now is, firstly, we weren't praying that all of the packets would be picked up off the table. We were praying that they would all be sponsored. So if you haven't sponsored them yet, if you took the packet and you haven't completed the sponsorship process, you've got like 10 days to make that happen before they'll go back in the registry, okay? Um, So I just want to encourage you to complete the process if you haven't done that yet. Secondly, I wanted to invite you guys to start and initiate correspondence with your sponsored child, okay? Uh, You can do it now through the Compassion International app if you download that. I've tried it. I can see both my sponsorships right in the app and communicate uh, through letter writing right through the app. So they make it super easy now. Would love for you guys to think about how not just with your $38 a month, you're able to meet their needs for clean water and food and education and things like that, but that you now have access to somebody somewhere else in the world to be a gospel influence in their life that you would begin that that interaction with them. So do that this week. And then lastly, I wanted to invite you guys to start thinking about how you might integrate these kiddos into your gospel communities, okay? So what I would like is that six months from now that I could walk into any GC and ask any member about the compassion kids that have been sponsored by members of your GC and that they would know them by name because you guys are bringing out the cards or pulling up the app and praying for them as a gospel community for those kids that we might believe that more than $38 a month that the Lord can do abundantly more for them, right? And so uh, let's create a culture of loving these kids in order that a year from now, when on Father's Day we have another Compassion Sunday, then maybe it's one of you who's going to be up here speaking to the church about what you've seen the Lord doing through our partnership with Compassion International as we invite other people into that. Okay, so just super pleased to see the Spirit move in you guys last week um, and celebrating that with you. Now, uh, I, I, I think it was maybe in year one or two of Mercy's Door, somewhere in between those two years, we had a guy, his name was Kyle, who initiated a men's only camping trip for the church. 
and he was a survivalist. He worked in the military, like jumped out of airplanes and would like teach guys how to survive behind enemy lines until help came. And so a really cool guy to organize a camping trip is what I'm trying to say. And when he got all of the guys together, I brought my uh, two older kids. Uh, my middle kid, Boaz, was five-ish at the time. And I wasn't sure if he'd be ready for a camping trip. Uh, just because he was five and still was afraid of the dark, right? And so was he ready to sleep in a tent in a strange place, right? Well, it was incredible, right? So uh, Kyle, he um, sun-dried a snake on a rock for eating, right? Like he taught like the kids like that, like that you could eat ants, right? He taught Boaz how to use a flint and steel to strike a fire, and, 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 and he showed him a lot of different methods for starting a fire. Uh, they went on trailblazing excursions and uh, splashed around in a brook, and it was like just an incredible camping trip, okay? We were singing worship songs around a bonfire uh, till the middle of the night, and then it came time to go to bed. And Boaz is sleeping with me, and so I take him into our little two-person tent, and we've got kind of one of those mesh openings on the dome of the tent so that when you lay down, you can see straight through. I mean, no light pollution, beautiful, clear skies. You can see all the stars in the sky, you can see the moon, and we just sat there, his head tucked onto my wing, and we looked up and just marveled together at the night sky, and I'm talking to him about how these stars just testify the majesty of our God, and we talked about Father Abraham and how he would have been looking at these same stars when the Lord made his promise to him that his children would outnumber these stars, but that he didn't know when God said that to him, that he'd be talking about us, right? That we were counted among the stars. And it was amazing. Just an incredible night, and Bo fell asleep so peacefully and wonderfully. And the next afternoon when we left, I asked him, you know, of all the things that we did on this camping trip, what was your favorite part of your first camping trip? And he says, without a moment's hesitation, sleeping under the stars. Sleeping under the stars. And this story came to my heart as I was preparing this morning's message because this morning's message takes place during what's called the Feast of Booths. And the Feast of Booths is a feast, it's an annual ritual that was given by God as a feast of remembrance among his people. You guys will remember that uh, when the Hebrew people were in Egyptian captivity that the Lord liberated them from Egypt and then led them by a pillar of cloud and fire for 40 years through the wilderness and provided for them miraculous ways. But while they were traveling for 40 years, trusting in God for their provision, they would dwell in what are called booths or tabernacles, and they would build these little tent-like huts and sleep in them, very temporary structures, because they were on the move. But for 40 years, the Lord was preparing a promised land for them, and they needed to trust in him for their provision. And as they entered into the promised land, the Lord commanded to them to take up a ceremony of remembrance, this Feast of Booths, and that in, in order that they would, as they entered into a season of plenty, not forget the God who has always provided for them, the God of their exodus, the God who would continue to provide for them, the God who was giving them this promised land, that in their prosperity, that they would not forget the place from which they came and the God who has provided for them. And so for one week out of every year, capped on both ends by a day of rest, they would dwell in booths to remember this 40 years in the wilderness that they would dwell in these temporary structures in order to see their God as a God of provision. Now I bring this up to you to say that I believe that when Boaz and I were sleeping in our little 
two-person tent and looking up at the stars that we got a tiny, uh, the tiniest of glimpses into what it means and what they felt when they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. That when you put yourself into a small dwelling place, that somehow it measures the majesty of your God. That when you put your estate low, when you, when you forsake those things which you are normally counting on to provide for you, that suddenly your eyes are lifted upwards and you see the God of the heavens. Well, that's what's meant to happen in the, in the Feast of Booths. It's meant to be this festival of remembrance that we would see the God who provides for us when we tabernacle. It's important that we understand this feast as we understand this morning's passage, and I'm going to show you why. Because it says this morning, chapter 7, verse 1, that it's after this that Jesus went about in Galilee, that he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see, also see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. And so our, our early context this morning is that we've just wrapped up our three-part sermon series on the bread and the fish miracle, right? So after this teaching, day of teaching, says after this, Jesus is going about in Galilee. And we had already read that when Jesus went into Galilee, he said, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. He was going back to Galilee, to his hometown, knowing that he would not receive honor. And here he is, not entering into Judea. Why? Because, verse 2, the Jews were seeking to kill him as the Feast of Booths is at hand. Now, in John chapter 1, the reason why I set this up for you is to say, in John chapter 1, our author, this author, says to us that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, that he dwelt among us. And this word, dwelt, comes from the Greek eskenosin, which is the same word for tabernacle, for tabernacle. And here, the Feast of Booths is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, right? So during the Feast of Tabernacles, the word was tabernacling among his people, okay? I want you to see these collide with each other. That the Jews, in recognition of a celebration given, them to, given to them by God, commanding them, you, all, you shall dwell in tabernacles in order that you might see me as your great provider, in order that you might remember me as your great deliverer. This is why you're doing the festival. That very God who instituted that feast is tabernacling among them. He is dwelling among them. And what are they doing with that? They're seeking to kill him. They're seeking to kill him. Okay, so this morning, I think as we think about the, the context here, that we need to recognize as a caution and as a lament that when Jesus, who himself, I don't know how to say this any bigger, that the, that the globe, that the earth was a tent to him, okay? That tabernacling among us was to take all that we claim is ours, all that we claim lordship over, and for him it was like a tent. The God of the heavens descended into a tent to tabernacle among us, to, to dwell among his creation. And as he's doing that, in his wonderful pursuit of mankind, what do we do as he takes on the lesser likeness of men and makes himself killable is we jump at the opportunity. As Jesus Christ, as God in human flesh, makes himself killable to dwell among us, we jump 
at the opportunity. The Jews jump at the opportunity, seeking to kill him during the Feast of Booths, which is at hand. And so I think that there's a tension that's created here that I want to invite us into, that there are really two poles here. One is that we celebrate that our God came in human flesh to tabernacle and dwell among us, and then to lament that our response is exactly what he said it would be, to kill him. To kill him. And this is the tension that he's in. So you see a Jesus who's hiding. You see a Jesus who's going about in Galilee, verse 1, who would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And the feast of the booths is at hand, so all of the Jews would have been gathered in one place. And his brothers say to him, Jesus' brothers say to him, verse 3, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. Now, as we see this interaction with the brothers, I want you to hear what they're saying. The authors just told us Jesus isn't going into Judea because the Jews are seeking to kill him. And his brothers are taunting and telling him and, and saying, why don't you go into Judea? Go show off there. They're trying to lure him and tempt him into the audience of the people who wanted to kill him. It makes me think of Joseph, Joseph betrayed into the pit, sold into slavery by his own brothers, that Jesus is looking at his brothers who he loves. He's, he's got 30 years growing up with them before his public ministry, and they don't believe in him. And as a very side note, this is evidence of what we've been preaching over the last several weeks, that if Jesus' own brothers who grew up in his home, who have known him his whole life, are rejecting him and do not believe him, surely he was telling the truth when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one will come to me unless the Father grants him. But all who the Father gives to me will come to me, will get there. But here he is squarely rejected by his brothers, not just rejected by them, but tempted and taunted by him. They say here, very directly, for if you do these things, show yourself to the world. What they're doing is they're accusing him of doing these miracles and performing these things in secret because in some way they're not legitimate. That he's lying, that he's not who he says he is, that he's not really doing these things in the power of God, because if he was, he'd do it in public. Why are you doing it out, in the, uh, out on the Sea of Tiberias in a desolate place on the side of a mountain? Why are you doing it in Samaria? Why are you going, well, church, let me tell you why. It was because he cared about the outsider. He was extending the work of God to the Gentiles outside the city center in order that you and I might be reached. And so this is the tension we're invited into, that Jesus Christ, in doing the things that was getting him rejected from his inner circle, was extending his grace to the outer circle. He was coming after you and I. And yet it brought him jeering, mockery, taunting, and persecution by his own brothers that he was going about in the countryside doing these things and would not go into Judea. So they say to him, let them all see. Let them see the works you're doing. No one's going to work in secret if he wants to be known openly. You go, if you go do these things, then show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed him. And this is resonating with me in this season of my life, and it's likely resonating with you in some way in this season of your life as well. 
Because the thing is, is that this is a relatable moment for us. If Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him, if Jesus' own brothers mocked him because of their lack in faith in him, if Jesus' own brothers taunt him and make fun of him and try to lure him into danger because they don't believe in him, then surely when you look out at your life, at your friends, at your siblings, at your parents, at your grandparents, at your cousins and uncles, at your neighbors, at your co-workers, and they reject you, mock you, ridicule you, reject you in any way on account of your faith in Jesus, I just say to you this morning, you're in good company. You're in good company. You are encountering and enduring that which Christ has already gone before you in encountering and enduring. Jesus Christ suffered at the hands of his own brother, mocking and ridicule. And so church, when you find yourself in that space, when you look about your relationships and find that there is tension and rejection and mocking and ridicule by the hands of the people that you love most, on account of your faith in Jesus, because they don't believe. Just know that Jesus has already gone before you, and I want to start there. I want to start there. Because the truth is, is there is going to be a wonderful resolve to this morning's encounter with these brothers. There is. But not all of the encounters go this way, go the way that we're going to see this morning. In fact, there is a passage in Mark chapter 3, I think it is, where Jesus' brothers say that he's crazy. They, they accuse him of being out of his mind. And Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, I'll flip, I'll flip there real quick, in warning his disciples that persecution will come for them, he says this to them, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. This is Matthew chapter 10, 34. I've not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And these are hard words for Jesus, especially in, I think, a, an American context where for the majority of our nation's history, we would say, and some, whether it's true or not, not worth debating from the pulpit, but to say, we would say that we're a quote-unquote Christian nation for the majority of the history of our country, right? That if, if for the majority of the existence of our country, 75% or more of the, of, the, of the residents on a census would tick the box next to Christian or something like it, if at least some version of Christianity is generally accepted and not, re and, and, and not rejected by the general culture, then it's going to be interesting or awkward for us or uncomfortable for us when we start to see the culture around us or our very own families at odds with us over our faith in Jesus. This is less normal in the context in which we've been raised in some parts of the world. But I'll say to you that today in India or Nepal or Iraq or Iran, if you were to put your faith in Jesus, if it didn't cost you your life, it would at the very least cost you your relationships with your family. It would cost you your mother and your father and your brother and your sister. To, to, to choose Christ, to put your faith in him, is to sacrifice to him your, your, your innermost relationships in many parts of the world today. And so maybe that hasn't been your experience. But for many of your brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, that is absolutely their experience. And I would suggest that if you find 
that there is nobody in your life who finds tension with you over your allegiance to Christ, then either celebrate that everyone around you is a Christian or lament that somehow you have made friendship with the world rather than with your Savior. And we know this because of verse 6. Jesus says back to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. So Jesus responds to his brothers that the world cannot hate you. That the world cannot hate you. Why? Well, because you're of the world. You belong to the world. You are the world's son. You have rejected me, and so you belong to your father, the devil, Jesus said. You, the, the world loves you because you hate me. But I, the world cannot love me. The world hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You see, to put yourself at allegiance with Christ, to come into his family, to be adopted by him, to, to worship him as your king, is to be at odds with the world because he came to overcome the world, but take heart, he has. But if the world loves you, if, 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 if you don't have an enemy in the world, not that you ever ought to seek it, but what I'm saying is you will find it, that in honoring Jesus and in surrendering to him as Lord, that you will put yourself at odds with the world. Jesus promised it. He said that persecution would come. He said that mother and father, son and daughter, would be split over this. And that is the worst. And surely, guys, you guys have people in your life today who you've been praying for, who you so desire to know Christ, and in the absence of their own saving faith relationship with Jesus, there is enmity between you because your greatest treasure is no treasure to them at all. And so there's a wedge that you can't in your own strength or power overcome. Maybe there are spaces where you want to put your faith away in order that you can get along to get along. And I know it's the worst. And I, I guess first I just want to say to you that he's good, that he's sovereign, and that you were not unlike them when his saving faith was gifted to you. You see, the encouragement for me this morning is not just that Jesus came to tabernacle among us, which can sometimes mean sojourn, that for a time he dwelled among us, but that even as his rejectors spat on him and jeered at him and tempted him into death, that even as they mocked him and paid no mind to him and tempted him, that Jesus still saw it through. You see, his answer is, my time has not yet come. Your time's always here. He says, my time has not yet fully come. And I think that a part of us wants to read this like, He's biding his time. But when he comes out, when his time comes, he's going to wreck some people, right? Like he's going he's gonna to climb down off that cross, right? And he's going to prove to all those who persecuted him who he really is. But instead, that's not what he's talking about when he talks about his time finally coming. He's not avoiding going into Judea because he's afraid to die. He's avoiding going into Judea because it's not his hour to die. 
He has preordained and chosen ahead of time the hour in which he would give up his life. And so he will not be taunted by his brothers to move that timeline up even one minute, not even one day, not even one meal. The day that he was going to allow himself to be betrayed was his day of betrayal, and no other day would, would suit because he was fulfilling the promises of God. So when he says, my hour has not yet come, he wasn't saying, my hour of glory has not yet come. He was talking about the hour of his crucifixion, the hour of my passion, the hour of my great sacrifice has not yet fully come. And the sacrifice that he was yet to make, the hour that would come, the hour that he patiently endured for our sake, he marched to it for these guys, for his brothers, for his rejectors, for you and I. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has bought me life. I know that it is finished. When we sing these words, we understand we were his rejectors. We were his scoffers. We were not unlike those who today jeer and scoff at you for your faith in Jesus. And so surely if you were not outside of his reach, then neither are they. Then neither are they. Well, it's no short of a miracle and a marvel that Jesus' brothers on the living side of the cross never acknowledged him in a biblical account as Lord. But when he gave up his life, when his hour did come, when he breathed his last, and when he took up his life again, his brothers would come to saving faith in him. These guys who wanted to betray him to his death, upon his death, would have their eyes opened to new life. In James chapter 2, verse 1, James, his brother, writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, All of these, the disciples, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Recorded after the passion, after his hour had come, after he had died for his accusers, after he had died for his rejectors, he brought them and purchased them into new life. These brothers would turn to him. And I acknowledge that there are some that you loved dearly who you desperately desired to see come to Jesus who died apart from him. And in those circumstances, I just want to point you to him that he said it would be so. He said it would be so. And he, he went to the cross anyway, knowing that this world would be filled with rejection and mockery and that they would love it. That is accusers, that is haters, would love one another. And it breaks his heart more than ours. But his love was so great that despite that, he still ransoms a remnant. And you don't know. What I know in my life, guys, is that 
there is no reason for me to be up here. If you would have told me at any point that Jesus was going to rescue me into new life with him at all, I would have laughed at you. To then give me the privilege to preach the gospel to others is a joke. It's a good joke. This is the Lord showing that he can use a donkey. And that's you. You were his rejecter. You were the one bent against him. You were the one who hated him and loved the world that couldn't hate sin because sin was your nature. And he saved you. But you've stopped praying for that one. They're too far gone. You've started to avoid that person because it's not worth the persecution that you have to endure the mocking or the jeering. When they spit on your God, when they spit at you for your faith, they're doing what's only natural. They're doing what you were doing when Christ saved you. But God, who is rich in mercy and steadfast love, has endured with much patience the rejection of the world in order that many would be saved. So continue for them. And let's see how this wraps up. He goes, he doesn't go up to the feast immediately. And this, it can look like he's lying here because the English sentence string is a little funny. They say, go up to the feast. He says, I'm not going up to this feast. He's just telling them no. They're saying, go because I said so. Go with us. He's telling them no, and he sends them without him. Then after they're gone, and he's declared to them, I don't, you don't dictate my timeline. The Father dictates my timeline. At its own, in its own appointed hour, because of the command of God, because he is perfectly fulfilling his will, he goes. Verse 10, after his brothers had gone up. Then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, verse 11, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So here we see two groups of people among the Jews in the feast, some calling him a good man, others saying, no, he's leading people astray, calling him a deceiver, both of them super wrong. He is neither a good man and he is neither a deceiver. but the Jews are seeking for him. Where is he? I hate stopping in the middle of a passage because he's totally going to break into the feast in a minute. But as he's there among them in the feast and they don't know that he's there, they're talking amongst themselves. And they represent the people in your life that we've been talking about this morning. They're talking amongst themselves about Jesus. Either he's, he's a liar, he's a nothing, he's a deceiver, he's a dead man. Or he was a good man. He's a te- he was a good teacher. He's certainly not hurting anybody. He's tame, right? The people who have not recognized Jesus as Lord have either reduced him to a good man or who have rejected him as just a deceiver. And both of them are wrong. And in both cases, neither one is any closer to seeing him as Lord. No good man in your life is, is, is any closer to being 
the king of your life, the Lord of the universe, right? And no deceiver is any closer either. Both of them are patently wrong. So I want you to see that, right? That like when you go about in your communities, right? And you think about those census tickers, right? Like that, yes, in our, in our general culture, that people don't find Jesus offensive, but they also don't worship him as Lord. Well, they don't find him offensive because they don't worship him as Lord. If you're not Lord, then I can take the good and throw out the bad. I can craft you into whatever, right? And so when, you're, when you are approaching, this is just kind of a lab here, I want you to hear it, that as you see Jesus correctly, that he can save anyone, but that until he saves, that we are entirely bent against him. You're going to go and you're going to preach the gospel both to those who think Jesus is a good guy and to those who just revile him because both of them stand equally opposed to Jesus, equally apart from Jesus, and they need his saving affection to come upon them in order they can see him as Lord. And yet, as they debated amongst themselves, some saying, no, he's a good man, some saying he's leading the people astray, none of them spoke openly about him for fear of the Jews. This is my final point this morning, guys. It's a small takeaway, but it matters. Fear of man driving your wrestlings into the closet, driving your doubt into the closet, driving your faith into the closet, fear of the Jews, fear of man, that if I were to talk about these things publicly, and this is two people I'm talking to, okay, as Christians, if you will not wrestle out loud with your thoughts about Jesus, with your faith in Jesus, if you will not, in the context of community, make your questions about Jesus and your wrestlings with Jesus known for fear of man, that if somebody heard me say that, they might think I'm not a good Christian. There are no good Christians. There are only perfect Christians. And your perfection is a gift given to you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so in the context of community, we wrestle out loud with our doubts about Jesus. But if you are on the outside, if you have refused to fully Submit yourself to Jesus as Lord for fear of man. I just rebuke you also, and I say, listen, he is worthy and commands the whole thing. The whole thing. We profess our faith in Christ, and we do not put it under a basket. But we have this blessed assurance, guys, that when we enter into suffering and persecution and jeering and mockery, that we are entering into that which Christ went before us in and insofar as we will take up our crosses and endure suffering like he did and die to ourselves as he did. Likewise, we will join him in new life and resurrection into the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the engine of the church. And it's the difference between these brothers and you. So big takeaways, guys. You are not alone when you endure rejection. He has died for his rejectors, and you were one of them. And if he can save you, who can't he save? So take heart, and you keep on praying. And you put aside your fear of man, and you boldly proclaim the gospel because your Jesus is that big. He's that big. Church, will you pray with me this morning that the Spirit would do these three things in us? Do it with me, Lord. Lift your, lift your eyes to the Lord this morning as you hear me pray. 
that, Lord, we are and will and are meant to suffer rejection when we come before the world with the message of the gospel. Your kingdom works against the kingdoms of the earth, but you have overcome the world, Lord, so comfort us. Show us that we are not alone in our rejection. Show us this morning, Lord, that you died for your rejectors, and we were one of them, so who won't you save? Let us trust in you for that. And give us heart to keep praying and to keep pursuing those who remain on the outside looking in, that they might be ransomed for your glory's sake. For these three things we pray because we believe that you can do it. Amen.